Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. We're in Mark chapter 9 today. I'm actually going to pull in another text from Mark 10 and refer back to a text in Mark 8.31 because they're all very similar theme. So let's read Mark chapter 9 verses 30 through 32. The title of today's message is Predestined to Die. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know for he was teaching his disciples saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Now Mark 10, next chapter, I'm going to pull in a couple verses from there. Very similar theme. Almost sounds exactly the same, actually. As they were going along the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And now Mark 8. So we started Mark 9, went ahead to Mark 10, verse from Mark 8 now. This is kind of a theme in Christ's teaching. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Let's pray. Lord, we believe in the Holy Spirit. We pray you be active in this room in our minds, our hearts. Lord, we pray for the speaker and the hearer. We are all weak. We boast not in our strength or our faculties, but in your power and your spirit at work in us. So we pray that the resurrection life of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit would be at work in this message today as it comes to us in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I've said many times, and now we're seeing it, here we see Jesus coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration and beginning his steady march toward Jerusalem where he is going to die and knows that he is going to die. As the Gospel of Mark changes from this sort of comic book hero Jesus going from place to place doing incredible signs and wonders, talking, you know, commanding the weather, the weather obeys him, raising the dead, opening blind eyes, casting out demons, sort of this major key, and all of a sudden, the whole gospel of Mark changes to this minor key as Jesus aims toward Jerusalem. He foretells his death and resurrection, and it's so important that his disciples hear it, that he said it in his teaching at least three times personally to them. Why would he do that? Well, first of all, he wants to show them that he's not freaking out over what's about to happen. He's not saying, "Uh uh-oh, guys, I'm really scared about this. The devil is scheming a scheme for me in Jerusalem, and I don't think I can stop it. That's That's not the message. No, this is the will of the Father. He knows it, and he accepts it, and he embraces that death and resurrection are part of his future. Psalm 2 says that the kings of the earth plot against the Lord, but the one who sits in the heavens laughs. No one can stop his plans. He oversees and arranges all of the suffering, and that is never more clear than it is in the death and the resurrection of Christ and all the events surrounding it. Now, 
Josh and I didn't compare notes, and, and it's interesting that you talked about you know, the encouragement you gave this morning about suffering and pain and God working in that. Because that's really, I think, one of the big themes that we get out of looking at Christ's suffering is how to process our own in a way that it comforts us and builds up our faith. Whether or not a Christian will suffer, someone who follows God will suffer, is often debated in the body of Christ. And there's entire movements and ministries and teachers dedicated to teaching on this topic on both sides of the issue, and many paint the cause of suffering as a lack of faith or the devil's work. Uh, I knew a pastor in western New York whose wife died and his mentor came to see him from Texas and sat down with him and he said, let's be honest, let's be honest, I know it's a hard word, it's, hard, it's going to be hard for you to hear. He says, you know why your wife died of cancer? He says, why? He says, you didn't have enough faith. It's an absurd conclusion. But there's many who teach that and believe that to the point where they, build, they write books about it. There's series and entire church movements built on that idea that a Christian shouldn't suffer. And yet here we have our master, our example, our savior himself, the greatest example of suffering. And we see a calmness and confidence in Jesus that suffering was part of the plan to glorify God the Father in his life and through his life in the world. Sometimes churches offer little or no answer to suffering. In fact, some try so hard to make Christianity a positive, exciting experience that visitors end up feeling like they're visiting Disney World. Matter of fact, I went to Disney World a few years back. I remember walking through the gates of Disney World and feeling this like, yay, awesomeness. I'm just like, I actually, this is a familiar feeling. Like, why do I feel, what am I feeling right now? And suddenly... I put myself in the foyer of a megachurch that I'd visited. Now, not all megachurches are evil, okay? This is not a diatribe against megachurches. But this particular megachurch, this was like that Legos, everything is awesome kind of vibe. And it felt very similar to Disney World. Now, I believe this Disney mentality provides no answer for suffering. And suffering is one of the many reasons, and having no answer to suffering is one of the many reasons that people raise objections against the Christian faith, and why there's an exodus of people who leave churches when they suffer. Often the modern church has no answer for them, or simple pat answers that are based on carnal reasoning and they're not biblical at all. But the Bible actually has answers, and we're starting to get into it as we look at these texts about Jesus foretelling his death and resurrection. Here in these passages, we pull back the veil and get to see some of the cogs and springs of how God works and how his will works. Jesus says, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. We see a couple things here. We see that God foreknows. That means God is omniscient. He knows everything. Jesus has already seen what's ahead. He's, he's privy to what's happening. And it's unfolding to Jesus is as sure as the morning. This is, not, um, this is not something that might happen. Jesus knows this is going to happen and it's going to result in this fruit. He foreknows. But the second thing we see here is that God foreordains or foreplans. As we read scripture and all the prophets, we see that the cross 
was a predetermined planned event by God that Jesus was predestined to die. Isaiah 53, 5 says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. This is a prophet looking forward to a future event. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. And then he concludes five verses later in Isaiah 53, 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Think about that. We know how the story played out. It was the Jews who, it was Judas who betrayed Jesus. It was the Jewish religious leaders who condemned Jesus and cried out, crucify him. And it was Pilate who allowed it to happen. It was the Romans who actually committed the flogging and committed the, the act of crucifixion. And yet Isaiah says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He did it. I'm about to say something shocking that you don't often hear. If you're asking the question, who killed Christ? What might you conclude? I think we often say, well, and to some degree it's true, oh, I did. My sin put him up there. We have songs like that. Who killed Christ? It was, it was the, the Pharisees and the legalists and the false teachers who misunderstood his, his life and ministry and message. Yes, well, it's true. It was the Romans. They killed Christ. We have to conclude, based on what Jesus is saying here in Mark and what Isaiah said, that actually... It was God who killed Christ. God killed Christ. Now, the, the Romans and the Jewish religious leaders were the second cause. They, they actually committed the act, and they'd be held responsible for that act and that sin. But God was the first cause. It was a predetermined event planned by God. Jesus was predestined to die according to the will of the Father. Why? Because he wanted to save you, and he wanted to save me. And he wanted to redeem his church, his people. So these passages bring up some mysterious and powerful biblical concepts, foreknowledge and predestination. Now, maybe right now you're going, oh man, that's what this message is about? Dang. I don't know how many of you are interested in fixing cars. I was talking to Larry this morning, impressed to find out that he and his friends replaced his transmission. That's pretty impressive. I can't imagine being less passionate about something than I am about fixing cars. <laughs> For years, I'd have mechanics or people with technical savvy open the hood, and the minute I, the hood is open and I look under, something just turns off in my head. Something just goes blank. Now, that said, if something happened to my car, I would give the obligatory peek under the hood and stand there with my hands on my hips looking at it you know, on the side of the road. We're, we're obligated as men to do that, right? I do that. Doesn't mean that I know what I'm looking at or that I, you know, I don't know what, I, I guess if there's a fire, I'll put it out. Like I, I'm not sure exactly what I'm looking for under the hood. And maybe you're like that about theological concepts like these. Man, I don't want... We're looking under the hood? I don't want to look under the hood. Now, in recent years, I've paid more attention to cars, and I can tell you what little I do know about them has served me well. I actually replaced a headlight bulb by watching a YouTube video. Do we need Will on the drums? It's a, Okay, okay, okay. Now also, another, another uh, family part of this thing is we want to teach our children big theological concepts that they grow into, not dumbed down, over, oversimplified truths that they grow out of. We want our kids to grow up with a, a head full of theology and an iron spine to be able to face the wind and storm of life, and that's only possible if we look under the hood and dig into concepts like these. 
So these ideas keep some mystery as well injected into their hearts and ours as fully grasping them is beyond us. And that's my concession up front. We're going to talk about something we can't fully grasp. Um, and at the same time, it's in the Bible. So let's start by talking about this word predestination. Now, I want to say up front, predestination is not a dirty word. It's a Bible word. It appears seven times in the New Testament. That's why it concerns me when I'm talking to someone about predestination and they say something like, I don't believe in predestination. To deny the word itself would be silly since the term actually comes from and is in Scripture. So you'd have to cross out a whole bunch of verses in the Bible if you said, I don't believe in predestination. Clearly the idea, the concept, predestination is a biblical reality. The question is not does it exist or not? The question is, what does it mean? And how does it work? And that's what I want to talk about. And up front, I admit that I don't have the wit of the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. I don't have the intelligence of R.C. Sproul. And I'm definitely not as nice as Tim Keller. But I do love the Word of God. And I consider you friends. And I want to do my best to explain some concepts that are powerful and have personally meant a lot to my family and I, especially my wife and I. And what I like to avoid in teaching a message like this around this topic is sounding like a Bible school lecture or that I'm on a soapbox or a diatribe against a certain theological camp. This message is not exhaustive on the topic and won't answer all the questions you might have, if that's even possible to answer those questions. But these concepts are in the Bible for a reason, and unfortunately, I often see these ideas foreknowledge and predestination often completely neglected by churches and teachers. And I think the reason might be the vocabulary we often use in our Western churches when it comes to onboarding people to church membership. I often hear the language essential and non-essential. We say, if you're going to be a member here, we need to agree on essentials and we need to have charity and non-essentials. And I agree with that. And yet oftentimes when we use that language, what we really mean is what's communicated is important and not important. We're not going to discuss the, these things are off limits because they're non-essential and they're not important. And we ignore these ideas to the point of neglect when the Bible actually teaches them. And as we've said before, because we teach through the Bible, we end up in texts and passages like this. And we're going to talk about these things as often as the Bible does because the Bible talks about them. So I prefer the language not essential and not essential, non-essential. I prefer the language open-handed and closed-handed. In other words, there's some things we hold in the open hand. And this topic is one of them. And there's some things we hold in the close hand. There's some things that to not believe them would make you uh, not a Christian. But there's certain things where wherever you land on that, it has nothing to do with whether or not you're saved or whether or not you're a Christian. It just has uh, more to do with how you're processing the Christian faith. And, and these topics are in that category. Our church and one of the movements that we're connected to, Acts 29, we're also connected to Converge, a wonderful movement, considers, considers these truths important because they're in Scripture, and they're in Scripture for a reason. Other churches, denominations, and movements like the Sovereign Grace Movement, if you're familiar with them, some Baptist movements and traditional Presbyterians would teach what I'm teaching today. However, many other Protestant evangelical churches do not teach this and have been historically split on the topic. That said, we understand that, and you'll never hear us say at Redeeming Hope, you have to believe this or else. It's in the open hand. You can happily land in a different, with a different view here at Redeeming Hope and fellowship with us and walk. You're wrong. Like, you, you'd definitely be wrong. But you, can, but you can 
land in a different spot without any condemnation or break in fellowship at all. And we don't have special seating uh, in the closet for you if you... <laughs> so why are these concepts controversial? I think, I think there's a few reasons. Number one, some people are concerned about protecting human responsibility, and rightly so because it's a Bible command. In other words, there are ifs in the Bible. There are choices, real moral choices by moral creatures in the Bible, and we want to protect that, and we do too, and we understand that. Another reason, as I think on the basis of observation and human intuition, I don't feel any restriction when I make a choice, and therefore God can't be involved. I think sometimes we conclude that. Some, I think it's controversial because they think it's unfair of God and paints God perhaps in a meaner light. Some just don't like the idea of not having ultimate control. One of my favorite movies, The Matrix, illustrates this as Neo went to the Oracle to find his future. Spoiler alert, sorry. The movie's been out for 20 years, so. He went to the Oracle to find out his future, but he admitted to her that he hated the idea of not controlling his own destiny. In the end, the oracle, knowing that Neo would not accept the truth about his destiny, told him what he needed to hear so he would think he was in control and ultimately do the very things that would fulfill his prophecy and destiny. The one who sits in heaven laughs. No matter where you land, let me just offer a bit of my heart, my pastoral heart, and hoping that you'd understand my personal perspective. One of the scriptures that drives us as pastors and teachers is where Paul told Timothy, correct, rebuke, and encourage as we preach the word. For me, the topic of predestination and foreknowledge fall in the encouragement box, not the correct and rebuke box. So I don't want to be combative or disrespectful with anyone. I just want to say that personally, these teachings have been a source of great comfort and joy for Heidi and I, and I refuse to allow these truths that have brought so much fruit and joy into our lives to fight or divide. Our journey really began in 2001. We were in a charismatic movement at the time. I was going through spiritual depression and anxiety disorder, and Heidi was pregnant. And the pregnancy, there were, we, were, we had some problems. Went to the doctor, and we were told, you're going to lose the baby. My wife and I are in the parking lot in the car. I'm walking through just mental health issues. She's walking through this report that we just got about this, the baby. And Heidi said, I don't know where I'm supposed to land. Do I, am I supposed to have faith that in spite of what we just heard, that God is going to heal me and that this baby's going to be born? Or do I land where Job did, though he slay me, yet I will praise him? I don't know where to land. Well, we lost the baby, and it was very painful. And we had a well-meaning intercessor come up to Heidi in church the Sunday after we lost the baby. And she said to Heidi, I just wish that the Holy Spirit would have told me that the devil was going to come and take your baby, because then maybe I would have prayed and stopped it. And we're like, pause. What? We just started, we processed that later on. We talked about what she said, well-meaning person, but completely theologically off. Like, what is she talking about? And we, we thought, okay, somebody's in control. Somebody's sovereign here. What are our choices? We can believe like this woman believes that the devil's in control. He can just come anytime he wants and rip the baby out of your womb and do whatever he wants. So either Satan's in control or we're in control and it was our lack of faith that caused the death of our child. Or the third option, 
God's in control and he has a plan in this and he's sovereign over this thing. We went to the word, we went to the scriptures and it took a while for us to land where the scriptures were taking us. But when we did, it was a source of incredible comfort for us to realize that God is sovereign. He plans, ordains and predestines and foreknows. Now, one of the things my wife and I discovered was that we had a fortress in our minds around the concept of free will. We've also seen it in a lot of other Christians. However, though the Bible clearly teaches human responsibility and obedience, the term free will doesn't exist in the Bible, so we didn't need to defend it, and we dropped our defenses. I remember reading George Whitfield's biography, um, the two-volume series by Arnold Dallimore, as he was going through his own journey into understanding what we now call big God theology. And I remember having a moment where I was like, I just dropped my defenses around that, that fortress of my own free will that I was protecting. Like, God, you, you can't step beyond that line. And I, I realized that God was the foreman constructing every part of my life. And I just, I just wept. I had a night and I was laying in bed weeping, just realizing you're in control. You're sovereign. You rule over your creation. The Lord plans. The Lord ordains. The Lord... Uh, the Lord takes his own counsel and, and you are doing something in this that I don't understand or see, but I trust you. And it was an, it was an incredible moment for me. It took us a couple of years to get there because I had this fortress. And, and maybe since then, I, I've kind of concluded that there's probably a better way to say it. And the way I say it now is there's actually a bad definition and a good definition of free will. The bad definition of free will is human autonomy independent of God. The idea that there's a hard line between our will and God's will and that where our will begins, God's will ends. You can't conclude that. If you go to the Bible with no preconceived ideas, there's absolutely no way to conclude that based on what the scriptures say over and over and over again. Proverbs 21.1, for example. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it like water where he wishes. Acts 4, 27 and 28, going back to the death of Christ. In fact, in this very city, Peter prays as they were praying in Acts 4, in this very city where Herod and Pontius Pilate conspired with the Gentiles and the people of Israel against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, they carried out what your hand and will had decided beforehand would happen. So Heidi and I laid down our presumptions and we began to see a bigger God than we'd ever seen or embraced and actually brought tremendous peace and rest and comfort to our hearts as we entered this sort of big God theology. Smaller me, bigger God. My old theology had a bigger me and a smaller God. Now we see a God who knows and plans, a God who predestines. We've been raised to see the man side of the gospel, which is clear in many passages of scripture. Like I said, there's ifs in the Bible. But we began to see the God side of the gospel, and in it we found incredible strength and comfort. So while staying close to the passage we're in this morning, and bringing in enough scripture along the way from other parts of the Bible to illustrate how obvious it is in God's word. Let's, let's talk more about this. Let's define the terms. Foreknowledge. Foreknowledge. It comes from the Greek word prognosko, which means to know beforehand. In other words, God has foreknowledge. He's omniscient. He knows beforehand. But the knowing is not simply knowing something about the future or about the person but knowing the individuals themselves, the word knowing here implies a very relational knowing. So it literally means that he has a, a, he's, he has a relationship beforehand with the person, in a sense. 
And so you might literally interpret this as for loved. I want you to think about that. A lot of people have loved you in your life. Your mother, your father. The minute your mother laid eyes on you and you were born, she loved you. The minute your dad saw you, he loved you, right? Jesus was the first one to love you. You are foreknown. It also implies this knowing has creative power. Like in the Bible when it says Adam knew Eve, that's a procreating knowing, a creative knowing, if you know what I mean. That, that word it, that's used in foreknowledge implies that kind of knowing. It's for love and it has, cre- it has power in knowing. It has power to create. So that's foreknowledge. The second word is predestined. It's the Greek word proorizo, and it means to predetermine and foreordain. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's to destine beforehand. Now, these definitions are helpful because some say that God's predestination is based on foreknowledge. In other words, God knew what everyone would choose and then predestined based on that. Basically, they're the same. They're synonyms. Predestination is foreknowledge. But if that were the case, why would the Bible separate these terms constantly? Romans 8, 28. God works all things for the good. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose. 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. The Bible separates the concepts. So if predestination is foreknowledge, why would he do that? If predestination is just foreknowledge, then that means that God's power, in fact, does end where human will begins. Martin Luther, in his treatise, The Bondage of the Will, argued that believing that God's power ends where man's will begins destroys and ravages God's omnipotence, which means that God is all-powerful. Luther and anyone who believes in a healthy view of predestination does not deny that we have the ability to make choices, but simply points out that human freedom means our choices are not outside of God's sovereign plan and power. That God actually works with our faculties to accomplish His will. Jared Wilson wrote, Predestination is God exercising His free will. And finally, number three, if predestination and foreknowledge are synonyms, if they're the same thing, why would the Bible say that no one chooses the Lord? Psalm 14 says, the Lord looked down on the sons of men and see if there were any who were righteous, any who sought his face. No one seeks the Lord. Romans 3.11 repeats it. And then Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, I chose you. And so the door of the kingdom, you might say, Uh, has a sign over it that says, whosoever will come. Clearly, we proclaim the gospel. You respond as a moral creature and you make a moral choice to follow Jesus and you come and you you feel no restriction at all in making that choice. You make that choice. But what you find out as you start to read the Bible, once you enter through the door of the kingdom, is that the other side of the door, once you get on the other side of it, says chosen. Now, based on the definitions of these words, And the objections that I just pointed out, there's actually a stronger case to say that foreknowledge is predestination, not that predestination is nothing more than foreknowledge. And as an aside, by the way, the devil doesn't know or plan the future. He wants you to think that he does, but he has no power to know or plan the future. He's not omnipotent and he's not omniscient. Okay, that was a long preamble. Let's get back to the main idea of today's text, that God planned Christ's death. Where do we see foreknowledge and predestination in the Bible? We see it everywhere. Start with Christ and the cross. I'm just going to kind of read a bunch of scripture to kind of wrap our minds around how thorough the Bible is in explaining this idea 
in different contexts. We see it in Christ on the cross. As I said in Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Luke 24, 25, and 26. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? Luke 24, 44 through 46. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Revelation 13, 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship the beast whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. We see foreknowledge and predestination in Judas' betrayal. Luke 22, 21 and 22. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. John 17, 12, we see the same thing. Jesus says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. We see it in the prophet Jeremiah's life. As we see God very involved in his life and birth. Jeremiah 1, 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. We see it in Job's life. After suffering from storm, winds, fire, bandits, and sickness, Job says, For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. So he didn't blame the wind and the fire and the bandits. He saw them as second cause. He saw God as first cause to the point where, and to repeat, he would finally say, Though he slay me, Yet I will praise him. He wasn't looking any longer at the second causes. He saw that God was behind this whole thing. Job 42, verses 1 and 2, near the end of the book of Job. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. So we see it in Job's life. We see it in creation. Again, Job, in talking about God's sovereignty over creation, he says, For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise, to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man that all men might, might know that, that all men may know it. Then the beasts of the field go into their lairs and remain in their dens. From its chambers comes the whirlwind, the cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick clouds with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for his land or for love. He causes it to happen. We see it in animals in Psalm 104. These all look to you, writes the psalmist, to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide their face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and they return to dust. We see it in Jonah's life when he was thrown into the sea as he speaks of creation. For you cast me into the deep. Was it, it wasn't God, it was actually the other sailors. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Yeah. And finally, we see it in the rulers of nations. As I already quoted in Psalm 21, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. 
And in Romans 9, it talks about Pharaoh and it says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show you my power, my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. What about us? Are we predestined? To what extent does he do this in our lives? Now, maybe you're hearing all this and part of you is just going, man, I don't like this. Okay, first of all, one of the things that I've realized as I study scripture is I don't have to like something for it to be true. And what if I am so weak in sin that this is what it takes for God to save me? Matt Chandler shares that though he struggled at first with the idea of God's sovereignty and predestination, it became like a warm blanket to him. And the Bible makes it clear about God's work in your life in Ephesians 1 when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, in whom we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. So here we see that Paul makes predestination synonymous with the love of God. He says, in love he predestined us. It's like when we were at uh, Outer Banks some years ago, and my son Jack was two years old, and I preached to him. I said, don't go to the water on your own. Stay here with me. Don't go down there. And Jack exercised his own free will, and he ran toward the water in a moment that I was not looking. And by the time I saw him, he's sprinting toward the water, and a massive wave is coming. And if it hits him, I don't know if I can find him under the water. And I'm screaming to him. I'm preaching to him, Jack, stop, don't, come back, Jack, stop. And so I started sprinting toward him. And just before the wave hit, of course, I grab my son and I pull him out of the water. That is predestination. That is election. That is God's sovereignty working in our salvation. We all exercise our free will to run from God. And if left to our own vices, we'd reject God a hundred out of a hundred times. We were running toward the water and God in love predestined us and pulled us out to the praise of his glorious grace. Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame and sat down at the right hand of God. He's the author. And that's why Paul says, he began a good work in you and he shall perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, okay? For it is God who is at work in you to will and to do of his pleasure. So here's the, here's the summary of it all. Simple summary of predestination and foreknowledge. God causes good. He allows evil, but he ordains all things and he arranges all of it for his sovereign purposes. Okay? The conclusion we draw is that God is good, God is sovereign, and God is working. We all need to embrace those ideas with all our hearts as we walk through the chapters and suffering of life. Because if you don't, if you think the devil is sovereign or you're sovereign, you'll end up in a very bad place. But to believe that God has a plan in all this, even if I can't see, God has a plan in all this. And he's working in all of it. I remember talking to my daughter, Joy, 
when she was young, she's now 23 years old and she's in Oregon. And when I was introducing these concepts, concepts to her and I said, Joy, you need to believe that God is good, but also that God is, is sovereign and that he's working. He goes, she, she said, it's, that's actually important, isn't it? To believe that he's, he's good along with his sovereignty because it's one thing, she said, to know that he's in control and plans everything, but she said, and I'm quoting, what if his plans suck? <laughs> I said, right, so you got to believe God is good too, right? She goes, yeah, I need to see him for who he is because then he'll use his sovereignty in my life in a way that I can trust. I said, that's it. Now you're getting it. Now you're getting it. What is the purpose of predestination in the Bible? Why does the Bible repeat it so often and point it out so much? Three ideas. And I'm borrowing here. I'm ripping off Wayne Grudem, okay? If you want to do a deeper study, look at Wayne Grudem's Bible Doctrine book. He says the purpose of predestination is threefold in the Bible. Number one, a comfort. Doesn't it comfort you when you suffer to know that God is sovereign and good and working and has a plan in all of it? That nothing that happens in your life is an accident, but it, he's working something in you. He's working something through you. He's working something for you, for his glory and your good. And that is a deep source of comfort. It's what comforted Joseph. So that at the end of his life, after he was betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, framed for rape by Potiphar's wife, thrown in with the king's prisoners, forgotten for a couple of years, God arranges this whole thing to bring him into the palace and make him second in command. And at the end of his life, when his brothers came and they begged him to forgive them, he said, what you meant for evil, listen, based on what we just said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. In other words, there was another intention. There was another agenda working through the evil and arranging the evil for my good and your good. And I see it now, he's saying, I see it. You can't always see it. But at the end, we see it because what happens throughout life is he brings us up to that 30,000 foot view. We get on the top of the mountain and we look down in the valley where we were and we go, now I see how it's all connected. I couldn't see when I was in the valley. I couldn't see how it was connected. I couldn't see the forest for the trees, but now I'm up here. I can see it. Joseph could see it and it was a deep comfort to him and it ought to be a deep comfort to us. So the first purpose is comfort. The second purpose is praise. Remember what I just read in Ephesians 1, to the praise of his glorious grace. He's the author. He's the perfecter. He's the giver of every good and perfect gift. Therefore, I take no credit and there's no boast for me in anything good that I have or am or anything good that happens in my life. I bow and I worship and I say, Jesus, to the praise of your glorious grace. And finally, the third purpose of predestination in the Bible is an encouragement to action. In other words, if God has written this beautiful story and he's working out awesomeness uh, in his church and at Redeeming Hope and in my life, then I want to get involved and I want to I, I I take action because I know that he's working through it all and that it, there's some awesome things that are, I'm going to be a part of. Grudem says, it's kind of like telling a fisherman, I promise you're going to catch fish. This is a great fishing hole. Go fishing. You're not beating the air. Your work is not in vain. That's why in Corinth, God told Paul the night before he preached in the city, fear not, for I have many people in this city. Ain't nobody got saved yet. He motivated him with predestination, and that motivated him to preach. Kind of like if you're a great musician, and there's a great orchestra piece that is written, and I say, will you join me and use your gift to play this beautiful piece? What trained musician would look at the piece and go, you know, look at 
Beethoven or Bach or Vivaldi and go, man, it's written? I don't know, I ain't going to play that. I like playing spontaneously. Every professional musician wants to play the most beautiful music. And what the Bible is telling us is that God has written this beautiful piece and he's inviting you as his child to be a part of picking up an instrument and playing the music that glorifies him in the world. What musician wouldn't want to play? So there's no fatalism in this. There's no determinism in this. There's joy in this. Now back to the cross. Jesus knew he would die. Now I want you to consider Jesus' attitude toward his impending, inevitable suffering. He knew he would die, but because he knew the Father was in control and in the end it was for God's glory and his good, he endured the cross. Understanding predestination and sovereignty gave Jesus comfort and courage. And we see the same attitude in Peter. Jesus foretold in Peter's life that Peter would die a martyr's death. Second Peter 1, 13 and 14, we see the same attitude. He says, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus has made clear to me. This is the guy who denied him at one point. Now he's in the gospel. Now the Holy Spirit has indwelled him. Now he has perspective of God's sovereignty and providence and salvation and foreordination. And he says, I'm at peace. I'm at peace. Because I know God is sovereign. He's, he'll work through all of it, his glory. Seeing the purpose of God in our suffering and pain, comforts us in the present, and removes fear of the future. So you don't like where the country's heading. Next year is going to get crazy, right? Can we just kind of get ready? Next year going to be crazy, the election year. God is in control. So you're frightened about the economy. God is in control. So you don't understand why you're struggling financially. God is in control. So you don't understand why someone you love is suffering so terribly. God is in control. He has a plan, he's good, and he's working. So you don't understand why you were betrayed. God is in control. David, when he was betrayed by Shimei, who was throwing stones at him, one of his officers said, you want me to go there, cut his head off? And David said, the Lord told him to do it. Don't, don't stop him, the Lord told him to do it. The Lord put him up to it. <laughs> God is in control. Can we look ahead to our future, even if it includes pain and suffering, with the same peace and joy that Jesus did or Peter did? Not fatalism or determinism, the idea that our choices don't matter. That's completely unscriptural. unscriptural. But look ahead with faith and hope and joy. Like a great musician playing a pre-written orchestra piece, we join in the music. And I'm pointing this out because as we look ahead, look at these scriptures in closing. The gospel does promise hardship for the Christian. John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Three simple applications. Number one, don't be afraid. Number two, if you're suffering, meditate on God's sovereignty. And number three, be active in God's work, knowing you are not beating the air. Let's pray. Father, as we look at you walking along the road with your disciples, telling what was coming, there's a peace and a confidence and a joy that the world couldn't give and the world couldn't take away. I pray that you give that to us as well. In our present suffering, as we process our past suffering, as we look to the future, that we would see not 
fear future suffering, but anticipate future grace. That you're with us, you're for us, and if you are for us, who can be against us? Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.